0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, they say the two things that you shouldn't talk about are religion and politics. But we dive right in with former Senator John Danforth, author of the new book, The Relevance of Religion, How Faithful People Can Change Politics. We talk about his career as an ambassador and a senator and his work as an Episcopal priest. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is John Danforth. Danforth served as Attorney General for the state of Missouri from 1969 to 1976, when he was elected to the United States Senate. He served as Senator for almost 20 years, choosing to retire in 1995. In 2004, he served briefly as the 24th United States Ambassador to the United Nations. A graduate of both Yale's Law and Divinity Schools, Danforth is an ordained Episcopal priest, in 2006, Penguin published Danforth's book, Faith in Politics How the Moral Values Debate Divides America and How to Move Forward Together. Danforth is a Republican who, in the book and later interviews, has raised criticisms of his own party and their alliance with the evangelical conservatives. His new book is called The Relevance of Religion How Faithful People Can Change Politics. Senator Danforth, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Thank you very much, David.
0: As I mentioned in my introduction, uh, you attended divinity school and were eventually ordained to the clergy. But ultimately, you decided not to serve a parish, but rather to enter politics. And in your new book, you write about that process of discernment. But I wonder if you might start out by taking a moment and speaking briefly about that decision so that our listeners can know kind of what was going through your mind at that time.
1: Well, when I was in college, my intention was to go to law school, and I was very interested in politics. But I majored in religion, and um, then I thought I had a, a calling to the ministry. I wasn't sure whether it was to the parish ministry or teaching religion, so I went to Yale Divinity School, uh, intending to to pursue that course, and not very long after I got there, I I realized that it was not a fit for me, that I was... I didn't have the, the temperament to be a good parish pastor, and I didn't have the theological kind of mind to be a, a teacher of religion, so I reverted to law school, and uh, I did practice law, still am, in fact, and uh, got into politics, ran for attorney general, and then later became a U.S. senator.
0: So this this process of, of deciding whether to go into the parish or whether to go into the study of law, the study of politics, it sounds as if uh, that was a deeply personal struggle. Was there anyone that you consulted with along the way that gave you any good counsel or advice?
1: It turned out to be personal rather than something that benefited from consultation. I went into to talk to a uh, professor at Yale Divinity School to seek his counsel and it, he really gave me short trip. So uh, I, I was kind of left to, you know, it was a very, very personal decision. But I think that's true with a lot of, you know, what course you, is your life going to take? It's It's what feels right. It's a kind of a sense of of you know what your heart tells you and and uh, that's the way it turned out.
0: Did you find uh along the course of your political career that your theological training was a hindrance or it was a help?
1: Well, I I never saw a direct connection between you know my faith and the and the practice of my politics in in any sort of issue specific way. I think that when you're in politics or when you're in anything else in life, you're the totality of yourself. You know, you don't, so if you're, if you're a person of faith, you don't check your faith at the door wherever you are, but nor do you try to translate it into some sort of specific agenda that you're trying to push on your constituents. So yeah, I mean, I think it clearly informs who I am and what I was when I was in public life, but not in a, okay, here, is, here are God's instructions on how I should vote in the U.S. Senate or anything like that.
0: Well, and I hear clearly you saying that your, your theological positions, your religious convictions, you didn't see a bright line between those and any specific agenda or decision that you made. And I think that goes, that goes hand in hand with, with some statements that you've made on many occasions where you say that religion has a role to play in civic life, but you're always careful to point out the importance of humility when people of faith enter the public sphere. And I'm wondering if you could expand upon that notion of humility in light of what you're saying about your own personal commitments.
1: I think in politics it's it's really important and not just for people who are professionally in politics but for all of us who are citizens and we're interested in 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 what's going what's going on in the world because I think one of the problems in politics is when people take the position that all right I'm right you're wrong and um I I have a monopoly on truth and it's particularly bad when people think, well, my agenda is God's agenda, and yours is not. I'm on God's side, therefore you're not on God's side. And so there's no possibility of real give and take, and there's no possibility of compromise. And I think that politics gets broken, and I think it is broken today. I think it's broken because people have A lot of people who are very active in politics have these unyielding agendas, and uh, they oppose any sense of compromise. They impose litmus tests on their politicians so that there's no give and take. And politics, if it works, is the world of give and take. I mean, that's what it is. It is the art of compromise. It has to be. Uh, in order to function and that's how it was structured by the framers of our constitution.
0: We have this 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 requirement for self-governance that we enter the political sphere with an intention to compromise. But a few years ago I was I was li- dialing around on the radio and I happened upon Rush Limbaugh and I uh, was listening for a few minutes, and he basically raised the issue of compromise. And he, his point a couple of years ago was that it was a non-starter. And in, in effect, he said, how can you compromise with error? How can you compromise with policies that are clearly wrong on their face? He said, there's nothing to compromise with. And I think he speaks for a lot of citizens right now. They, they have echo chambers on the left and on the right, and they're convinced that the other side is either evil or crazy. So, how do we begin to rework the basic fabric of distrust that permeates our political discourse right now?
1: Well, the book that's that's coming out in in October is really on this on this subject, and what it calls for is greater political participation on the part of people of faith and more willingness not just to vote, but particularly to vote in primary elections, but to show up at political meetings and, and and have their voices heard, not in the furtherance of a particular issue, although they're certainly welcome to do that too, but in advancing a, a constructive tone of politics and one that is the, the opposite of uh, my way or the highway. And I think that that's where most people in this country are. I don't think most people just wake up in the morning wondering what great uh, thing is going to come from Washington or from their state capital. They're just getting about their lives. What they expect from politics is simply that it function reasonably well and that it be a place where we, with all of our diversity in our country, can work out our differences. So with that, if they express that expectation, if we express that expectation that government simply function, and that we don't see politics as our religion, it is not the world of the absolutes. It is not the world of ultimate concern as the great theologian Paul Tillich would have put it, it is just politics. It is simply politics. It is not. We don't make idols of our religious positions. And I think if we were to become more vocal in stating that, in stating that that is our expectation and that we do expect compromise in politics or else things just fall apart, then I think we've got something to say.
0: For the benefit of our listeners, could you take a moment and explain how you understand the concept of the separation of church and state?
1: Religion in politics has a tendency to be very divisive, and that is why our founders, the the writers of our Constitution, and the advocates for the Constitution believed that it was very important to distinguish between government and religion. So that in the First Amendment to the Constitution, we have prohibited the establishment of of religion and interference with the free exercise of religion. We have kept government out of religion. And the, the other side of that coin is to be very respectful of the role of government and not have religion entangled in government.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with former U.S. Senator and Ambassador John Danforth. He's the author of the new book, The Relevance of Religion, How Faithful People Can Change Politics. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with former U.S. Senator and Ambassador John Danforth. He's the author of the new book, The Relevance of Religion, How Faithful People Can Change Politics. Senator Danforth is also an ordained Episcopal priest, and we're talking about how he integrates the life of faith and the demands of politics. Well, and I want to stay with this for a minute because in your book, The Relevance of Religion, you make a very interesting observation about the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, And you point out that Niebuhr says that the Gospels give us, uh, at least as Christians, give us a very clear commandment, what you are calling and others call the love commandment. Niebuhr says that if we tried to enshrine that commandment into law, it would create injustice rather than justice.
1: Randall Niebuhr was really the great American theologian of the 20th century. And he said, first of all, as a realist, you can't really legislate the love commandment specifically. And if you did, it would be uh, it would lead to injustice. For example, if you took the position, say, turn the other cheek, turn the other cheek to crime, to violence, turn the other cheek to aggressiveness on the part of other countries that are trying to push their weight around, the result would be that the strong would always win out over the weak. So you can't draw a political strategy out of the love commandment, but he said that the love commandment should be something that influences how we think about politics and how we go about government. So that the love commandment would say, all right, we have to live together as a country. We have to honor each other. We can't just be all out for ourselves. It can't be, you know, what can I grab out of the rest of the country? Or as Kennedy used to say, you know, the, what, don't ask what your, what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Well, that sort of not just, in, not just advancing your own cause at the expense of everything else, would be how the Love Commandment would influence how we go about the business of government. But if we tried to really put it into law, sort of legislate the Love Commandment, it wouldn't work.
0: Um, they're sometimes referred to as those that hold a dominion theology, and they tend to be on the right of the political spectrum, and they they almost want to literally enact uh, divine or, or uh, Old Testament law into civic law. And if I'm hearing you correctly, your caution to them would be that that will always backfire. But that instead what we should be doing and again correct me if I'm if I'm hearing you wrong, but what we should be doing is is using these commandments, using these these laws that we learn as Christians and followers of the Bible uh, we should be using those to influence our hearts, and then let our hearts, so influenced, begin to to filter our politics. Have I heard well, you correctly? I think
1: there's a difference between the tone of politics and um, and the details of a of a legislative agenda. And I think that whether not just people on the right, people on the left also, and the people who have written in this in this way that, you know, they really believe that their faith directs them to a specific point of view. And people on the right have it with regard to social issues. People on the left have it with regard to, say, government spending and tax policies. So it's possible either on the right or the left. and it,
0: Senator Danforth, your earlier book, Faith in Politics, was in some ways very critical of the role that religion has played in politics over the last 40 years. And you also write that your intention with this new book, The Relevance of Religion, is to give us a more positive account of the role that religion might play. So for our listeners who've not read either of these books yet, what are the main criticisms that come from the first book, Faith in Politics, and what are some of the positives that you are are putting forth in this new book? The first
1: Book was written ten years ago, and it was um a response to the divisiveness of religion and politics and how wedge issues had been developed you know from religious perspectives, and that they were used as wedges. they were used intentionally to energize the political base, particularly of the Republican party and to divide us as a country, and that that was the point of that book. And other people at at the time were writing about the danger of the entanglement of religion and politics. This book is written really from a different slant, and it is that if you think politics today is broken, and I think almost everybody thinks it is, it's just not working, if you think politics in America today is broken, then what can people of faith bring to it to try to mend it? Or what approach can we take? No matter where we are on the political spectrum, we can be liberals, conservatives, Democrats, Republicans, whatever we are in politics. Is there something in common, a point of view, a perspective we can bring on politics that is is healing and mending to the current broken state of it?
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Danforth, former U.S. Senator and U.S. Ambassador. We're speaking about his new book, The Relevance of Religion, How Faithful People Can Change Politics. If you'd like to find out more about Senator Danforth or the book, please go online to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Well, this was something that struck me very powerfully in reading your new book. And so the current assessment of the populace is that Congress is broken, and you, you agree with that assessment. But then you make this statement that I found very provocative. You said that if we want to fix a broken Congress, the key is not to point the finger at the members of Congress, but instead to look at the public to which Congress is beholden. And I wonder if you could take a moment and elaborate on that.
1: Politicians listen to the public. And uh, they listen. I mean, they they are very attuned to what they hear. They want to win the next election. And they better be attuned to what the public is telling them if they intend to win the next election. So they, politicians, people in Congress, listen to us. And the question is, what do they hear when they listen to us? What's the message that they get? And if the message is, give me, give me more, give me more benefits, give me give me more money or tax me less, if that's what they hear, then what's the result of that? The result is, okay, the customer, namely the voter, is always right, so how about a $20 trillion national debt? And then what they hear from the most active people in politics, that is, the people who vote in primary elections, the people who show up at town hall meetings, and the people who are on talk radio, what they hear is, don't compromise, don't give an inch, you know, read my lips, no new taxes, that kind of thing. And then they, in order to you know, please their constituents, according to what they hear their constituents say, then politics gets uncompromising, and that's the current state of affairs. We have become very polarized in our politics, because the people who are the most outspoken, the people who are heard by the politicians, are the ones who punish those who want to compromise.
0: I was very taken in your book by this notion of the concept of civic virtue. And in fact, you you devote an entire chapter to that, and it's a subtext throughout the entire book. If I look back at the history of philosophy, for example, to the writings of Plato about Socrates, one of the, the famous questions that animates that writing is the notion of whether or not virtue can be taught. And you speak very much about the important role that religion plays in helping to subtend these civic virtues. Are there specific teachings? Are there specific doctrines? Are there specific aspects of religious life, Christian life, that you see aiding the teaching of civic virtue? Or is it more just being a part of a religious community generally that helps to inculcate these virtues?
1: Well, I think it's both. I think it's I think it's the message and I think it's also it's also the community. And um this is this is another point that I make in the book that you know we we have become fractured as a country. It seems that the bigger we are and the more rapid communications should tie us together, the more isolated we become from each other. And people have written about that. I mean The great uh, Robert Putnam, the Harvard sociologist, has written about in his book Bowling Alone about how we are just all sort of isolated atoms and how to tie us together in a sense of community. And he also wrote a book, co-authored a book called American Grace, about the role of the religious congregation. Not just in tying the congregation together, but binding us, building what he calls social capital, binding us together as a country so or a community. So I think that it's both and. I think it's both the message and I think it's participation in, in the community of the faithful.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Danforth about his new book, The Relevance of Religion, How Faithful People Can Change Politics. Danforth is an ordained Episcopal priest, and for 19 years he served as the Republican senator from the state of Missouri. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Danforth, former U.S. Senator and U.S. Ambassador. We're speaking about his new book, The Relevance of Religion, How Faithful People Can Change Politics. If you'd like to find out more about Senator Danforth or the book, please go online to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. So what I'm hearing you saying is that Congress, by its nature, is responsive to the voice of the voters, and they will they will work to give the voters what they are asking for. And I want to be very careful in what I'm about to say next because I don't want to sound at all like I'm comparing uh, voters to children. But the 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 example that came to my mind is my own two children. And if I were to ask them right now what they wanted most at any given moment, their answer would probably be more television, uh, more sweets and less of less of the things like broccoli that are going to be good for them. Part of my job as a parent is to help to teach them to make better choices and to voice better choices. And again I want to be clear I'm not comparing voters to children and I'm not saying that the government or that what we're what our task in civic life is is to be paternal but it sounds like what you're saying is is part of the task before us is to educate voters to make better choices about what they demand and ask of their representatives have I heard you correctly
1: Yeah and and how this the I mean the title of the book is the relevance of religion well what is a, one of the principal messages of religion is that it's not all about me. And um, it, so it's not, how can I get the most for myself out of the world, but what can I contribute? And that was a very important concept for our early politicians. The first, Our first four presidents all talked about what they called virtue. And virtue was for them the great Republican principle. That's Republican with a small R. It was the great principle. And on, on that principle of virtue hung the future of the country. Or we depended on virtue. They had a, a meaning of virtue that was a little bit different, maybe included personal deportment But it was also, virtue for them meant the primacy of the public good, the common good, putting the common good above just what's in it for me. And Madison, the most practical of politicians, really the author of our Constitution, Madison said without virtue, everything else is just a mirage. So it was absolutely necessary for the future of the country that we as citizens think not about what's in it for me only, I mean, there's a part of that in all of us, but also that we think about and act for the common good. That notion of virtue pretty well vanished after the first four presidents and it had an occasional outcropping. Kennedy's inaugural address about, you know, ask what you can do for your country. That was an expression of virtue. That was more than a half a century ago. And what, what do we hear now? Well, we hear politicians desperate to get themselves elected. And their message to the public is, I'll never cut a benefit and I'll reduce your taxes. So we now have a situation where decade after decade, we're told, warned, that the future of Social Security and Medicare is bleak, but they're the third rail of politics. We don't want to touch them, so nobody does. And um, that is, when you talk about the common good as opposed to just what's in it for me, that really is a specific religious message, and it is a message that people of faith can bring to American politics.
0: Well, your book, in many ways, is a history lesson and a civics tutorial, and I I appreciate that. And I think that we need more of that in our country right now. And a moment ago, you mentioned James Madison. And in one of the chapters, you you bring up James Madison, and you, you say that Madison envisioned the legislative process as a balancing of competing interests. But then you go on to say that Madison would not have imagined the number of competing interests that we currently have in our political process. You mentioned the abundance of lobbyists, of special interest groups. And so my question to you, Senator Danforth, is, is it still possible for our government to function in the way that the founders conceived it? Or are we in need of some sort of basic constitutional retooling of our mechanisms for the no, The Constitution
1: century? is terrific. And for Madison, he, I mean, for Madison, the more interests, the better. I, he could, certainly could not have envisioned a country as large and as diverse as the one we have now. But no, his, his whole idea was that everybody has interests. So how do you have a system that can hold all those different competing interests together? And that was our constitutional structure. And it was particularly the role of Congress to do this at the federal level. Congress was the place to work things out. It was the place where varying competing interests would be represented and somehow the differences would be accommodated or worked out or allowed to coexist And this is what's not working now I mean Congress is not working it's just it's that is the epicenter of what's broken. American politics
0: today. Well, you mentioned from your own political history a lesson that you learned about the importance of listening to constituents. And from what I just heard you say in your answer, Congress is the body that is most tasked with listening and being responsive. But I wonder, your your own experience of listening to your constituents, and even if you didn't agree with them at the end of the day, having the chance for their their views to be heard I wonder how how that personal lesson that you learned might be instructive for for the Congress that we're currently dealing with
1: well, Congress is going to listen you know I mean as I said earlier, if they don't they're not going to get themselves reelected, and most of them are keenly keenly interested in in being reelected, so they're going to listen, but what is it that they're hearing and I think right now the what they're hearing is from the activists, from the people who do vote in primaries, and what they're hearing is you know the sort of extreme positions, unyielding positions, and the result of that is that there is real gridlock now in Congress. There's an inability to work things out because the people they're hearing from are saying don't work things out.
0: We've seen a resurgence of politicians in the last two election cycles claiming to be libertarians or at least espousing libertarian principles. And in your new book, you make the claim that the core value of libertarianism, which you classify as self-interest, you say that's antithetical to religion as you understand it. So help me help me understand what you mean by
1: this. Well, um, if you read libertarians, they're philosophy is self-interest. It's all about me. It's not about community. It's not about the good of the whole. It's not about the common good. It's about advancing myself. And disconnect me from government, disconnect me from society. I am my own person, and I am going to pursue my own interests at the expense of everybody else. I I think most politicians who profess to be libertarians, if they were pressed on it, they would say, well, that's really not what I meant to say. What I meant to say is, I'm not only conservative, I'm very, very conservative, but the philosophy of libertarianism is, is a disconnect between the individual and the society as a whole. And that, I think, is antithetical to religion. It is The meaning of religion is to bind us together. That's the meaning of the word. It doesn't always act that way, but that's the meaning of what religion should be. And I think that anything that exalts the individual to the point where there is a disconnect with a with the good of the whole, is antithetical to religion.
0: You have been a senator, which means that you have been at the heart of the the process by which we make laws for our self-governance. You also are an ordained Episcopal priest, and you have you have presided over the Eucharist, which is the central ritual of a religious practice for, for Christians. And I wonder, how do, how do you sort of see these things together or separately?
1: I think that the point of government is to hold together a big country with all of its differences and different kinds of people and the point of politics is to make that possible and not to split us apart but try to find ways to hold us together I think that's what government should be and what politics should be to me the I always when I celebrate the the Eucharist I always invite people to I, I always say this is this is not the table of the Episcopal Church it's for all God's people and please feel welcome here and i I think that it's the communion of of all people and and that's how I view it now there are different views of communion of the Eucharist. There are people who are very exclusive about it, and they have biblical citations that they point to. But my own view of it is that it's very inclusive. It's God's table. It's a common table. And it's it brings people together rather than pushes them apart.
0: This is Things Not Seen.
1: I'm David Dalt.
0: We're speaking today with former U.S. Senator and Ambassador John Danforth. He's the author of the new book, The Relevance of Religion, How Faithful People Can Change Politics. We'll be back in a moment. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Danforth. He's a former senator and ambassador for the United States, and he's an Episcopal priest. He's the author of the new book, The Relevance of Religion, How Faithful People Can Change Politics. If you'd like to find out more about Senator Danforth or the book, please go online to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Well, Senator Danforth, you were involved in the rise and the careers of John Ashcroft and Clarence Thomas. And I'm using that as a background for asking the question about the... The controversies that we've had over the past year or so, particularly regarding religious liberty issues, if we look at the Hobby Lobby case and others, you know, the Supreme Court has made some decisions about the practice of religion in public that have angered some people and delighted others across the political spectrum. And each decision has sort of uh, ignited different different populations of joy and sorrow. And I, I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind drawing on both your religious and your legal expertise to sort of look at the landscape of the last two to three years of religious liberty issues and sort of give us your take on what you think both the trends are and and what has, what has been the good and the bad to come of that
1: Well, I think that, you know, if you read Supreme Court decisions that there is according to how the Supreme Court has read the Constitution government does have the power to trump religious practices, not religious beliefs, but religious practices. But my view, and I think it's the prevailing view right now in Congress, is that while government has that power, it should be very reluctant to exercise that that power unless it's really necessary to do so and if it can accomplish its reasonable ends, government can accomplish its ends, in a way that allows for religious freedom, it should do so. So that's my view. I I thought that the Hobby Lobby case was correctly decided, and I thought it was correctly decided because it it reasoned that the... Exactly the same ends of government, purposes of government, could be accomplished without imposing on the religious practices of those who just were uh, had a, had a different uh, religion. I, I think that I thought that that was the right approach.
0: I wonder if you'd, you'd reflect for a moment on the importance that you see of protecting both majority religious practice, but also minority religious practice?
1: Yeah, well, the Constitution was not written to protect majorities. It was written to protect minorities. And I think that the same goes with proper deference to religious practices where government can differ, and it's not always going to be able to do that. There are minority groups that say that polygamy is not just part of their religion, it's central to their religion, but uh, it's long been held by the Supreme Court, and I think it's right that, okay, that is one thing we're just not going to have in this country. So the the power of government to outlaw polygamy uh, is there, and it's a reasonable power for government to exercise. It's you know you, you you have to have a country that that operates and functions and has some values which can be imposed by by active government. But my view is that the general approach that we should take in government is where we can let's honor the religious practices of uh, of other people
0: this is things not seen i'm david dalt we're speaking today with former u.s senator john danforth well you served as the republican senator from the state of missouri and unfortunately missouri has been very much in the news over the past year because of the events in ferguson and the protests that followed When you talk in your book about citizens needing to become more involved in their own moral governance, needing to to enact civic virtue, that can be a very messy process. I wonder if you would give us your thoughts on how citizens can and should best speak to their government about their grievances.
1: There are a lot of ways to communicate with people in government. Most people in Congress and I think in state legislatures hold what they call town hall meetings. I sure did when I was in the Senate, and uh, you just send out invitations to everybody in various zip code areas and say, you know, come in and and um, give me your views, and I'll tell you my views, and you have interaction. So I think that there are a lot of forums for people to um, communicate with people in government.
0: As you look back over your political career and your career in in the parish, what continues to frustrate you?
1: I think right now, I do think politics is broken, and, and I do think that Congress is broken, and that we've got to fix it. And um, I think this is generally held understanding that, it can't we can't do anything it, it's just people setting forth their unyielding demands or their positions on this and that and then total blockade so that for example in the senate where i served one one sitting senator told me not long ago he said we don't do anything it, it's just blocked it's just you know it's it's filibusters are not bringing matters to the floor the committee's not working it's just nothing happening there's no middle ground at all and that is frustrating to me and the tone of politics also the personal destruction in our political campaigns just awful so those are things that are that say I'm not sure frustrating is the word but concerning to me that's for sure but I think that all the more reason to try to fix these things and I think we can fix them but it takes an awful lot of effort i mean the people who want to fix politics have to be as involved as engaged as loud as The people who just insist on getting their own way all the time.
0: Well, Senator Danforth, I know that there are a lot of demands on your time, and I very much appreciate you taking a few minutes to speak to us today. And I've I've enjoyed the conversation very much. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you, David.
0: We've been speaking today with John Danforth. Danforth served as Attorney General for the state of Missouri from 1969 to 1976, when he was elected to the United States Senate. He served as Senator for almost 20 years. A graduate of both Yale's Law and Divinity School, Danforth is an ordained Episcopal priest. In 2006, Penguin published Danforth's book, Faith in Politics How the Moral Values Debate Divides America, and How to Move Forward Together. Danforth is a Republican who, in the book and later interviews, has raised criticisms of his own party and their alliance with evangelical Christians. His new book is called The Relevance of Religion, How Faithful People Can Change Politics. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ and their Navy Pier Studios overlooking Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. You can follow us on Twitter at NotSeenRadio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash ThingsNotSeenRadio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.